Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey, Jim. Hey, Catherine. Jim, there was a lot of news since we last spoke. A lot of things happened. It's hard to believe it was only a week ago that we had a coup or insurrection in Mm -hmm. this country. The thing that it did was temporarily distract me from the horrors of coronavirus, except what's coming out now is that several Congress people who were, you know, in lockdown when that was happening, they had to all crowd into rooms together some of them refuse to wear masks, and now some of them are testing positive. Yeah, not extremely surprising. Of course, it's impossible to trace the sure. infection absolutely to that moment. But, but um, definitely not recommended to get into a small room for hours with someone without wearing a mask. That's yeah, just like been sort of a consistent recommendation this whole time. The idea that the people who are in charge of this response and guiding our federal policy are not themselves willing and able to wear masks. And uh, I know there have been some questions about like, well, aren't those people getting vaccinated? Could you just explain why is it that some people who already got the vaccine are testing positive right now? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's an interesting question. We don't know exactly the answer to after you get vaccinated, you know, at what point do you develop that resistance. It's not going to be, you know, five it's minutes not later instantaneous, yeah. or even a day later. Um, but there's going to be a process where your immune system is developing a capacity to clear this virus, but you still might test positive, might carry it for a little while. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's coming at a really unfortunate time for these people who were infected in that scenario. And we don't know, honestly. <laughs> One would expect normally that it would take days to weeks after the actual shot before you could consider that your body has adapted. That is important, though, because I don't, I mean, I I have, you know, it is important for, especially for people who are getting access to vaccines now, and and hopefully more and more people in the coming weeks will, um, that uncertainty of when you are actually immune should be taken account into your decision making. Like even, so the first shot, first of all, you know, only half effective or whatever. We don't actually know. It's not until the second shot when you can even say you have any real immunity, but we have no idea when after the second shot that immunity actually kicks in. Not no idea. You know, we haven't actually done challenge trials where we, uh, you know, expose people, and we probably never will expose people to the virus and see at what point they actually develop immunity. Um, We will hopefully test at what point you develop antibodies, at what point they show up in, in your blood, and that should be a pretty good marker. But mm-hmm. but for, for people who are getting the vaccine soon, even after the second shot, I mean, just <laughs> what, what needs yeah. to be kept in mind? That's a great question. You Thank know, the you, current Jim. recommendation is that you just everyone continue to do the same preventive measures. Whether or not you've been vaccinated, don't start behaving differently because we don't know you know, exactly what the odds are that you might 
be able to carry the virus and spread it even after vaccination, even if you're protected from sickness. Um, all that we know right now is that the vaccines seem to protect people from getting ill. So everyone should continue to be really careful. Hopefully that doesn't remain the case forever. Hopefully there is a time when we can say, uh, once you've had the vaccine, you no longer need to wear a mask, uh, et cetera. Like right. that there can be a concrete sort of behavioral incentive but right now, we're still figuring all that out. Well, okay. So the thing that I was worrying about before I was worrying about insurrection mm -hmm. was the mutation of the virus. We've talked about this a little bit before. I think we talked to Ed way back when. You know, there were some scary headlines early-ish in this mess when there were mutations discovered. And, you know, it was kind of alarmist. And it was like, no, all viruses mutate. This is normal. It's fine. But... This mutation, well, I guess I don't know. It seems like this one maybe is different, but I can't tell. Can you just give me the summary? What's the deal with the headlines about this new mutation, this new variant? <laughs> oh, man, that is an enormous question. Uh, do you remember when we talked about herd immunity back in in the summer and I was like completely exhausted from trying to figure out the basic dynamics of that situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I am in a similar situation trying to make sense of and develop a coherent theory of how to think about these mutations. It's really, really complicated. Um, so you don't know the answer. It's no, I mean, I have lots of answers. It's just very, it's just like, can you tell me about the history of religion? It's just very big. Okay, well, and let me... I don't I know where to start. break it down a little bit? Yeah, yeah, okay. please. So my understanding is that viruses, including this one, mutate all the time. Mm -hmm. They're replicating constantly in millions of bodies now. So, of course, they evolve and mutate, and that is just a normal thing. It doesn't necessarily mean anything scary, and in fact, often, mm -hmm. as you've told me, viruses mutate to become less deadly because it helps them transmit better because if they're like really really deadly then then they don't transmit as well because they s so deeply sicken the people that yeah. they infect so i guess that's th the theory th at least yeah okay but then i start hearing news and it's like in britain they've found a new mutation and it's spreading fast and then mm -hmm. it's like oh they found it in all these other countries and it has at least the way the it's being framed as kind of like very much mutant virus taking over <laughs> the yeah. world. Uh, so I guess the question is, is this mutation different than other mutations? Um, and how worried should we be? And do we need to change anything? Yeah. I think the fundamental point to make just to start out, is that there is not um, one single mutation. This virus operates um, as a, what one researcher described to me as a swarm of mutations. Like mm -hmm. the actual original um, viral genetic code that was sequenced back, you know, from, from China back in January, that one no longer is around. Uh, it has mutated and moved on. And there are many thousands of different um, subtypes and strains, mm -hmm. we might call them, all over the world. And there are different lineages, you know, family groupings, and there are different clades, like sort of uh, large community groupings of different types of it's this called virus. A clade. They're just, 
Yeah, like a, a mm. um, what we might liken to something like an ethnic group of people where there's like a lot of diversity within it, but there are some similarities that make it similar enough to say, okay, there's some sort of grouping here. Uh, it's hard to define, but there are some genetic similarities. So, yeah, all right, I get that. So why are we talking about this one? Why is this one all of a sudden a thing? So this one lineage, which is not even yet a clade, the UK variant, as it's called, seems to have spread pretty quickly. We know this because the UK is doing a lot of sequencing of the the genomes when it finds a positive test, when you have a Mm -hmm. positive test. It doesn't just tell you yes or no. It will actually sequence the genome of that virus and try to, you know, work backwards and say, how is this virus evolving? Which variant do you have, you know? Okay, so first point is it doesn't mean that it originated there or that it's even most prevalent there. They're just doing a lot more sequencing. So they that could well be it. Yeah. They're the first place to identify this variant. Mm -hmm. Um, But globally, most countries are doing very little of this sequencing. You know, we're not, we don't have a good gauge on whether this might have started in lots of other countries and then come to the UK. Okay. It's kind of irrelevant where it started, but um, the point is it's Um, everywhere now. You know, it was first seen in the UK in September, and since then it has become a majority of the cases there are of this type. And that suggests that it has some sort of competitive advantage where it's beating out the other ones, which means it's more transmissible. Um, but that's it's all based on statistical modeling right now. You know, we don't... Um, there are a lot of hypotheses there that don't necessarily mean it will take over the world or that the same pattern will play out in other places. It's sort of like... Like when you have an invasive species in one lake or one part of an ocean, it doesn't mean, oh, well, this is definitely going to take over the world. But it is concerning. It means that species has some sort of property that, you know, makes it able to take over lakes or oceans and needs to be taken seriously. Okay. That's not a very clear answer to the question of, you know, should I be afraid? Um <laughs> Is there someone else who could give me a better alarm gauge? We're going to talk to uh, Dr. Vinit Menacheri. He's an assistant professor at the University of Texas Medical Branch. He's a virologist at the Galveston National Laboratory. And uh, he can talk to us about the, the basics of how viruses work and evolve and mutate and what we need to actually worry about. Okay. Hello, hello. Hello. Hi, this is Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Hi, this is Jim. Hey, Jim. How are you? Not too bad. How about you? Uh, Just, you know, living the dream here, I guess, uh, with all the (laughs) variants, uh, trying to try to figure out what the hell's going on. Oh, no. Please, please explain more about the dream. (laughs) Uh, The dream is that uh, those vaccines are going to work just great. And I, uh, I, I feel that's probably in our best i i would put my bets on that at this moment okay yeah can we back up because i wasn't even in my mind worrying about the vaccines um can you tell us just for the audience tell us a little bit about what you study specifically um and why the dream for you involves variants so i uh i'm a long time uh, coronavirus researcher uh, i worked on coronavirus before uh 2019 
Um, and so we've been interested. <laughs> before, <it was> cool. <laughs> yeah. before everybody worked on coronaviruses, there were some yeah. people that worked on it. So um, we'd been interested in how uh, coronaviruses like SARS and MERS emerged from bat viruses. And so the question was, what are those steps that takes a virus that's in bat populations and allows them to become human viruses? And so we were trying to figure out what allowed those jumps and try to identify what those threats were in those bat populations to be able to be prepared for something that's happened over the last year. Right. Is part of the reason you're based in Texas is because there are a lot of bats here or no? Uh, less so uh, for the bats here and more so for the fact that the Galveston National Lab is one of the premier biosafety containment labs in the world. And so. So do you all have a bunch of like viral samples uh, in very secure rooms, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, if it's a highly lethal virus, the Galveston National Lab will work on it. So we have Ebola, hantaviruses, coronaviruses, basically any kind of infectious disease, high containment pathogen we can work on here. Does getting dressed to go to work for you involve like a hazmat suit? Uh, when we go into the containment lab, um, it does involve wearing uh, several layers of stuff. Now, we're not mm-hmm. quite in the same ballpark as uh, the folks here who work on Ebola have kind of the space suits, um, the mm-hmm. non-puncture proof. We wear kind of what you see in the hospitals. We wear the gowns, the Got plastic it. Tyvek suits, and then we have uh, purified respirators that we wear instead of uh, N95 masks. So just one quick question before we get into the meat of this. I am curious for people like you who studied coronaviruses before 2019, is there any sense of like, I don't know, I'm going to use the word, the wrong word, but like vindication or like I, I was telling you about this or I was worried about this before or you guys all just showed up? I'm sure you're not as petty as I am, so. No, I'm, I'm very petty, but I think uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that anybody in our field would have predicted this. Um, Really? Really? It wasn't like a, this is definitely coming. We got to worry about this kind of stuff. I think an emergence event was coming. I think if you had asked anybody in the field, would we have seen something that was more on the scale of what we saw with SARS or MERS? I think that's expectable. Um, This is a hundred year event. You know, this is, you know, a generation ago, 1918 was the flu event that happened. And here 2020 is a coronavirus. You know, I think these are hopefully rare occurrences that you'll have kind of disruption that we've seen. Um, but I wouldn't have been surprised for a coronavirus emergence. I just, the scale of it was unprecedented. Right, right. All right. My understanding is that virus mutations happen all the time. And the lesson I learned in the early days of this pandemic was don't worry about them too much because it doesn't, th- this is normal and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, significantly more terrible just because it's mutated. But this latest mutation that's in the news seems like it is different and more worrisome, but I don't understand why. Is this, in fact, different and more worrisome than all the previous evolving mutations? The quickest answer at this point is we don't know yet. Um, The mutations that we think about are kind of twofold. There's mutations that change that allow the virus to replicate or transmit better. Um, These are worrisome because obviously that just changes the speed and the kinetics of how fast this virus can spread. And so that's one of the concerns with these different variants. There's the UK variant, there's a South African variant, and most recently there's a variant in Japan that's been traced back to Brazil. And each of these have a mutation at a position in the spike protein 
that are associated with potentially an increase in transmission. Can you help me visualize uh, it? It's like the spike is spikier and therefore stickier or something like what, what is it? Sharper, what is like it? Like a sharper claw. The analogy I would make, it's, it's actually like a key. And so the spike oh. protein has to fit to its key. Now you can think about a key in a lot of different ways, but the better that key fits, the more efficient and the more transmissible the virus is going to be or more easily it's going to replicate. And so these new variants may actually fit that key better. And that allows the virus to replicate or transmit a little bit better than the previous versions. And that allows it to transmit faster and potentially more widely um, in a population. And that's what's concerning. Got it. So it doesn't mean that it necessarily, this particular mutation wouldn't mean that it hangs longer in the air or that it is better at sticking to your skin or something. It just means that what once it is in your body, it is better at actually lashing on to the cells that it needs to infect you. It's not actually that it's easier to get into your body. It just is more likely to infect you once it's inside. Yeah, I think it gets back to efficiency. Now, again, we don't know anything for sure, um, but the barriers that are in place, masking, social distancing, will still be effective against this. The virus hasn't changed fundamentally. It's a small difference in a molecular aspect of the virus that gives it a little bit of an advantage. And what we don't know is we we think based on the math, it does have an advantage over the original, but we don't know the scale at which it has an advantage. So is it 10 times worse or is it two times worse? Um, if it's two times worse, you know, both virus, the original and this version are pretty transmissible. And so you may not really be able to see the difference. Um, if it's 10 times worse, I mean, you'll see that in terms of how quickly the virus spreads. Yeah. How do we figure that out? So there are a bunch of different ways, and none of them are particularly great. Um, so there are experimental ways that you know scientists here and around the world have probably already started studying, where we'll take the different variants and we'll put them into animals in direct competition. So we'll take the original and we'll take the new variant, we'll mix them together and put them in an animal, and then see how well they transmit, how well they replicate in different parts of the. So animal. are you going to be doing that? Is that what you're doing now? Yeah. So people in our group are doing that experiment. Uh, as we speak. Uh, what animals? Uh, we will be doing them in hamsters, and I imagine mm-hmm. groups will try to do it in ferrets and maybe even in mice. Each of these models are useful in their own way, but none are ideal because none of them are really human. When you hear a number like was widely reported out of the UK, like 70% more transmissible, which I believe made it to a push alert from the New York Times and is widely cited, do you think it's premature to put a number like that on here, or do you think that's an accurate ballpark? The number is accurate in the context of the viruses that are spreading in the UK. And so that's just based on what they're surveying and the total numbers. And so you can see that it is becoming a great part of the population very quickly. Um, but it's hard to gauge, you know, it gives us just a relative. You know, you have the original virus and you're comparing it to this other virus and it, it's moving faster, but we can't control for the other aspects of you know, the virus may be moving through a population faster than it was in the summer because of uh, the temperature or the conditions or the lockdowns mm-hmm. or the, you know, how strict people are with their masking. So there are so many factors that contribute to that. It does appear based on just the pure mathematical numbers that, you know, this strain is moving faster and more transmissible. But again, we don't have a relative scale to know how much more transmissible it is than the original. Right. So, I mean, how do I, as a 
person trying to just get through this internalize this news. I think the main concern I have currently, I guess there are two concerns. One is, you know, do I have to change my behavior? And and two is, should I be worried about vaccines? But I guess to start with the behavior, like I've kind of developed a an understanding of how this transmits and a way of behaving and a kind of risk tolerance that involves mostly being very worried about being not masked with people close, kind of being aware of surfaces, but everyone was telling me surfaces aren't really how it transmits. Food isn't really how it transmits. So I'm not actually being that careful about that stuff is like, does this raise the stakes of any of my day-to-day behaviors? I don't believe so. The, the precautions you're taking should still keep you safe. Again, the virus is not structurally different. It's these small changes at the molecular level, but it is a situation where you're, if you're unmasked, you may be at a greater risk of getting infected from that same person. Um, we don't know how much more, but given the wild, the original strain um, versus the new strain, if you're in contact and not, you know, have the same level of precautions as before, you're going to be at greater risk with these new variants. Right. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm wondering, have I had a lot of close calls or are there situations that maybe with a less transmissible virus wouldn't have resulted in me getting the virus when this new, more transmissible variant actually would be much more likely to infect me? I don't know if that makes sense, but that's how I'm thinking about it is just like, do I need to raise my fear level and standards again? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think you would get uh, a bunch of different answers on that. I, I think it's hard to say at this point. Um, yeah. I don't think we know for sure. I think there's a certain amount of there's a certain amount of luck and conditions yeah. that you you can't predict. Um, like one of the interesting and probably scary things about this virus is that the vast majority of the virus is spread by these so-called people super spreaders. Um, mm-hmm. So one in ten people is a super spreader, and they're actually the ones that transmit the majority of the virus. And so if you're in contact with someone who's a super spreader, um, those people are on average going to be spreading it to 10 to 12 people, whereas most people are spreading it to one to two. And we don't know a lot of the reasons on why a person is a super spreader. We know it doesn't have anything to necessarily do with how sick they got or their age or any of those kind of common conditions that you kind of associated with severe disease or maybe being more resistant. And we don't know if this new variant is more apt to make people super spreaders. We don't know if super spreaders spread this virus more easily. Um, So there's a lot we don't know. What's clear is that the new variant does seem to transmit better. Um, And so raising your level of protection isn't the worst idea, but I don't know that your risk is that much more than it was before. Okay. So as I understand it, viruses can become more transmissible by, you know, either being more efficient at, you know, that key being uh, better able to enter a cell or, and, or, you know, kind of increasing the viral load within any given person. So when you are carrying this virus, you just have more within you and you are therefore have more that's able to infect other people. Are there possibly other effects of that, that if you have a higher viral load within people that they might you know, develop symptoms differently, the disease might manifest differently, and that that, that might have other good or bad uh, consequences here that would change the course of the pandemic? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think the worry would be if you're increasing the viral load, the virus is replicating better, that you might cause more severe disease. Now, to date, we haven't had any evidence that these new variants cause more severe disease. And this gets to kind of a, a weird aspect of disease and transmissibility that often, you know, transmissibility, if you get really sick, you actually don't transmit the virus all that well because you're really sick and it's you don't interact with the same number of people. Whereas a virus that causes less disease might actually be more transmissible in a lot of sense because you don't feel as bad and you're more likely to transmit it to other people. Um, and so there's a little bit of a dichotomy in how these viruses spread. And this particular COVID-19 is kind of this Goldilocks of viruses and that if it was a little bit more severe, it would be easier to control. If it was a little bit less severe, it wouldn't be as uh, disruptive. And so in the same sense, these variants could push in one direction or the other. So far, we haven't had any evidence from the human data that there's more severe disease associated with it. But often it takes three or four weeks for that data to come in. It, you know, coronavirus doesn't kill in three or four days. It takes, you know, three, four weeks. And so some of that information will start coming in in the next, you know, if it's not coming in now, we may get some of that information now. And then the studies that we're doing in hamsters and in mice will also give us some insight. So when we compare the variant to the original, we'll see how sick those animals get and really look at how much disease and how much damage the new variant causes relative to the old, uh, the original viruses. Right. Okay. So what about vaccines. I understand the vaccines that we have here in the U.S. target the spike protein specifically. What, what does this mean for vaccines? So far, I have not seen good data for each of the individual variants tested against different sera. So what we have so far is that a number of groups have taken individual mutations and asked what the impact of those single point mutations. So these variants have four or five or six mutations in the spike protein if one of those mutations is important. Um, but my lab and other labs here at UTMB have tested it against vaccines here from Pfizer and against uh, people who have recovered from coronavirus infection and found that that mutation had no effect on the ability of those people's blood to protect them from that virus strain. So the antibodies still work just fine against that particular mutation. What we don't know is that when you take all these mutations in combination and put them together, are your antibodies still going to work? Um, and that's a question that hopefully will be answered here the next week or so. And that would be very high stakes if people's antibodies are not working, which would, it would mean that, you know, people who'd already been infected and presumably were immune or people who'd even been vaccinated, would sub, they would suddenly be susceptible to reinfection by this new strain. I mean, that would completely change change the game, right? Yeah. So that's, in theory, that is the biggest worry that you know, these variants overcome uh, immunity. But I think the important thing to consider is that the antibody response that our body generates, whether it be a vaccine or after a natural infection, isn't against one spot. It's against multiple spots. And so the entire spike protein is 1,300 amino acids. And so you could have antibodies directed against any part of that spike protein that can protect you. And so a small amount of antibody against any of those locations can work and actually provide sufficient protection. The worry is that if you have all of these changes and you accumulate all these changes like these variants have, that you'll diminish those responses and that in the short term, you might have antibody responses, but those antibody responses, if they wane a little bit or they go down a little bit, you may be more susceptible the next time around. Gotcha. What, what is your level of worry right now? 
So on a scale of one to 10, I'm probably at a three or a four at this point. It's not so bad. Yeah. So there are certain mutations that are more important than others. I think some are related to transmission. And what we have is these variants are, they're coming up in a population of people, you know, the vast majority of people don't have any immunity to them. And so these variants that we're seeing haven't been pushed to evolve away from antibodies yet. And so some of these may alter the variation. You know, your antibodies may be not as effective, but they're still going to be effective. I guess that idea that if you have a lot of protection, if you have, you know, 10 times the amount of antibody that you need, if you lose half of that, you're still going to be well protected. And I think that's where these variants are, that most people will be well protected from the worst aspects of disease. Got it. This is part of a process of evolution that we're seeing that is continuing to play out, right? I mean, I think there's an idea that like this mutation happened and now there's this strain and it's a static thing and it's gonna, we need to see where this particular variant or strain goes. But but really it's part of an overall sort of arc of evolution of lots of different lineages. And do you have a sense of kind of overall, where's this going? Is the, is the virus gonna <laughs> become more transmissible and eventually infect us all, but cause less severe disease? Um, you, you, do we have any idea of the, the overall arc of this narrative that's just starting to unfold? It's hard to say, obviously. You know, ideally, what you described is something that may have already happened in you know, the natural world with those common coronaviruses. So there are four or five common cold coronaviruses. Many of them have their roots to animals, whether they be bats or cows or other animal species, and then a jump into humans. None of those viruses cause severe disease. They all cause kind of upper airway. They're all very relatively transmissible, and you can get infected every two or three years with them. There is some possibility the SARS-2 will go along that route, that once we've all got some level of baseline immunity, that we've seen a virus like this or very similar to this, that the next time you have it, it'll cause kind of a mild infection. But for the most part, you won't end up in a hospital or on a respirator. And so yeah, that's kind of the trajectory that you could expect. But again, we don't know. This event could have happened in 2002 with SARS-1, but effectively that virus was stopped through quarantining and other procedures like that. But we have an event where most of the world will have seen this virus, either through a vaccine or through natural immunity. And so its trajectory in a few years is really hard to predict. Um, I'm hopeful that it's going to be more like a common cold coronavirus. The best outcome would be that it's like SARS-1 and it just disappears from the earth. Hmm. I would like that. But um, I think lots of people would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I think this is yeah, uh really this appreciate is it. helpful, but it sounds like we just don't know enough to freak out yet. So like that freaking out us. is not a useful <laughs> Yeah. Thing. I mean I think the advantage of what we have is that I would say in the next three weeks we will know exponentially more than we knew three weeks ago. Okay. That's good. That's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. The mm -hmm. rate at which we're learning and working and you know, I think we're position to get a lot of answers quickly. Um, you know, the teams that are working on it are a number probably close to 50 or 60 researchers all across the university. And that's just here um, around the world. You're talking hundreds and thousands of people that are working on this project. Well, thank you for working on it. And please tell everybody in Galveston, thank you for us. This is, it's so incredible. Everybody yeah. who's just, you know, suiting up and, uh, 
you know, messing with hamsters and figuring this out. It's, it's really incredible. So thank you. Oh, no problem. That's, you know, unfortunately it's what we do. Um, but yep. uh, I'm looking forward to all of this being over and taking a long vacation, but I, I, I am so excited for you. I, yeah. where are you going to go on your, on your, um, vacation that hopefully will be sooner rather than later? I don't know. I, you know, I'm just <laughs> somewhere that's not my house would be great or the lab <laughs> would be wonderful. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that for you. Uh, and wow. tell everybody in Galveston, uh, thank you for us. Okay. Great. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. That's somewhat reassuring. Yeah. Do you, do so. you think so? I mean, you said you yeah. had been like staying up all night trying to figure out mutation stuff. <sighs> like, is this, are we good? <laughs> it's one of those situations where I've been really worried that I was misreading the situation because so much of the news coverage has been really right um panicky and people are on high alert and really smart people are telling us mm-hmm. um that this is really bad and i've tried to you know justify that and i can't rule it out but i think our our data are are really incomplete and we just don't know exactly what to make of this mutation got and it, got it. some of the hypotheses that are being bandied about are just like really really improbable um right. So we just have to wait and see. Like what he's saying is just g- give us three weeks. <laughs> cool it for three weeks and we'll tell you. Yeah. At a practical level, it doesn't change anything. And it's certainly not worth going around with some idea in your head that there's like some brand new version of the virus that's way right, worse. Right, right. Although I do think, I mean, I am just personally going to tighten up my behaviors. Not that I've been that lax, but I, I feel like I've gotten lax on hand washing actually. Yeah. So I guess I'm just feeling like, okay, I got to up my level of precautions for three weeks at least until we know more. Yeah, sometimes it helps to have a novel aspect to the uh, to the threat to remind us, even though like <laughs> if this turned out to be nothing and if we were to say, oh, it was fine, you know, 4,000 people are dying in a day, but it's not worse than that. You know, how do you have a moral calculus where you think, oh, well, that then I guess I'm okay with that i don't need to worry yeah Did maybe that that's like what i was complex because it wasn't no it was no and not Washington. not not for you but i just mean generally yeah. like it, it, it on its face it's a little bizarre that anyone you know that needs to be news that there's this is even worse than you thought when it is already so bad yeah but it's like every it's so it's what we've been talking about the whole time where we're sort of like the horror we're experiencing because it is predictable and because it's not a grand Machiavellian plot, but like a series of really just sad institutional and leadership failures. Like it's, it's not very interesting. (laughs) Like it's more exciting to think there's some terrible new thing, not just that we're, we know exactly what we need to do and we've failed, you know, 4,000 people are dying a day because not because we don't know what's going on, yeah. It's because we know exactly what's going on and we keep failing collectively. And it's nice to think that in some way there's some like weird rationale in a scary new mutation. Am I making sense? Yeah, you are. And and that's crossed my mind when I've heard political leaders lean on this. You know, specifically in the UK, Boris Johnson said, you know, we need to shut down because there's this new variant that's taking over. Um, yeah, it's like what we've talked about forever, though, that we are not at least sort of 
culturally here, we are not good at planning and the long haul. We can do like dramatic Mm -hmm. things briefly, (laughs) but just sort of rational planning and, you know, doing the sort of boring work of setting up a society that is fair and caring and gives people health care and you know sorry i just i've no i nodded off there for a moment what were you saying <laughs> all right i'm gonna shut up but anyway all right well thanks i i won't freak out we'll wait for three weeks yeah yeah we'll see okay um one quick note for listeners We're cooking up some new podcasts here at The Atlantic, and one of them will be coming out in a couple of weeks. It's going to be called The Experiment. I'm very excited. I will let you know when it's out. But in the meantime, um, I am going to be working on that next week, and so I won't be here next week. But Jim, you're going to have a better person to talk to. There's no one better, um, but there are other people who are different, not unlike these, you know, different forms. Right, right. You're going to have a different clade. A different clade will be uh, joining um, us next week. Yeah, Maeve Higgins will be joining us, who has been on the show twice before and is a friend of mine. And we'll catch up with her because she uh, has been outside of, of the U.S. in a mysterious location. And we'll see how the things look from the outside in. Exciting. Okay, well, I can't wait to listen and hear what she's been up to and... Uh... I'll be back after that. Um, This show was produced today by Kevin Townsend with help from senior producer AC Valdez. Write us at um, socialdistance at theatlantic.com. You can also call us and leave us a voice message, 202-642-6487. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. It's nice to read them. Feel free to leave us a question in the review. So I will talk to you soon, but... You will talk to Maeve next week. And I'm looking forward to hearing your new show. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you more soon. I'll make you talk to me a lot about it. Okay. Okay. Cool. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.